Before listening to this episode, remember that we are currently selling our token. You and your friends will be able to make part of the seasteading ecosystem. Visit veryon.io for more information. And if you want seasteading to go to your country, we now have a Blue Frontiers global contest with a final price of $100,000. Make your own seastead. Visit bluefrontiers.global to win the possibility of bringing a $60 million investment to your city and the chances of hosting our second sister. Hi, I'm Joe Quirk. Welcome to the Blue Frontiers podcast about all my favorite things, seasteading, the environment, special economic zones, and innovation in science, technology, governance, and society itself. Hello, seasteaders. I am here with Mark Lutter. He's a PhD in economics, and he's also the director of the Center for Innovative Governance Research. Mark has done extensive work on proprietary cities, and today we are going to be talking about his work, the Institute, and how he sees the future of governance. How are you, Mark? Uh, good. Thanks for inviting me to the show. Thank you very much for being here and for all the times we had to postpone. Sure, no worries. Yeah. So... Mark, for, let's start with the basics. What is the Center for Innovative Governance uh, Research? So the, the Center for Innovative Governance Research is a 501c3 nonprofit that's dedicated to advancing the ideas of charter cities, of free cities, of seasteading, of special economic zones, of these different forms of uh, political decentralization. And our idea is that there is a wide and large degree of interest in these types of projects. Uh, for example, among the humanitarian community in dealing with the refugee crisis, among the uh, um, economic development community, particularly in low-income countries, that just simply because of a lack of institutional infrastructure, the lack of an ecosystem, many of these conversations simply haven't been taking place. And so we believe it's possible to create the environment, the ecosystem within which a large number of these charter cities projects, free cities projects, can really start to take form by helping to initiate some of these conversations. So I saw that you recently been to the, you were recently in Dubai. Yes, that's correct. What were you doing there? So I was in Dubai attending the uh, annual World Free Zone Organization Conference. Okay. Uh, and it's the World Free Zone Organization Conference. It's a relatively interesting group. Um, there's a lot of free zones, primarily from Africa, Latin America, a few from Europe, a few from North America, a few from Asia too, but not nearly as many as one might expect. Uh, the organization was formed four years ago. The, the money is mostly Emirati money, but it's the, the organization itself is styled as a industry association. And so they were talking about uh, free zones, about changing trade patterns and, and how free zones could take advantage of those. But at the same time, I think there was the opportunity to insert in the discussion more of a focus on what might be called free cities or charter cities, 
focusing on rather than simply look at free zones as a as export processing zones or as zones uh, with with lower taxes really thinking about wholesaler reforms and how these could be used to spark sustained economic development in some of these locations. So you've just made a distinction between projects that are mainly in economically focused and other different focus like the focus of the Institute, the Center for Innovative Governance Research, which is more focused, as the name says, on governance. How is it different to focus on purely economic aspects like free zones or innovation in governance in general? Sure, so I think traditionally there have been some very successful examples of, of uh, special economic zones. For example, uh, right, Shenzhen, it, yeah. it, it was the Shenzhen, the creation of that, which sparked the, the, the Chinese growth miracle, which has lifted some 800 million people out of poverty. Wow. But looking at the uh, history, the economic literature on special economic zones, their net impact is marginally positive. If you ignore China, their net impact is likely negative. There hasn't really been very deep research on this, so it's difficult to say with, with certainty. But as sort of a high-level generalization, most of these special economic zones aren't necessarily uh, value-adding. And so you can think, for example, if there is a, a, a special economic zone with lower taxes, what could happen is, okay, there's more, now more economic activity in that zone, but the alternative is that firms that are outside the zone could just relocate to the zone, pay lower taxes, but there wouldn't be any additional economic activity. And so the idea is, this is not to say that some zone regimes have been very successful, others have been unsuccessful, and so the net impact is at best as previously mentioned, marginally positive. But I think what we try to do with the Center for Innovative Governance Research is to focus more on, on, on the governance aspects of the zone, right? So instead of just doing thinking about zones as potentially being export processing or having lower taxes, thinking of, okay, some useful heuristics, for example, if you're creating a zone from scratch, what is the best legal structure? Most zones are approached, okay, the, the government has this set of laws on the margin, how can we improve this set of laws to attract more investment? Yes. Versus, okay, let's blow up this entire set of laws, and if we're building a new legal system from scratch, within this environment, within this context, what does that legal system look like to attract sustained economic growth? Um, two, trying to focus a little bit more on multi-use zones. Uh, so, right, thinking about the city, the city is a sufficiently, it's the, the, the arguably the, the, the smallest unit within which there can be sustained growth. And, but, but, but cities, they're, they're, they're multi-use. They tend not to be single industry, they tend to have residential areas. And so a lot of zones traditionally might focus on a single industry. They might focus on, for example, textile production. Yes, or but, yeah. But I, I think, right, to achieve sustained growth, you need to focus on more than just a single industry. And so you need to be able to, 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 to bring in this, this ecosystem that allows this, this, this development. And, and I think a third important issue is the size of the zone. And so if the zone is geographically constrained, it could be an industrial park, it could be value adding, but right, the, the gains would effectively just be efficiency gains. 
So it might uh, create these efficiency gains in the first few years, and then it would peak, and then this, 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 this industrial park would be more productive than the rest of the country. However, in thinking about what it means to create sustained economic development, right, you don't just need the, the, the efficiency gains, you need to change, change the growth, change, change the growth rate. And, and for that, you need something that has a sufficiently large territorial size, which can be accomplished in two ways. First, you can simply just, at the outset, say the zone is sufficiently big, which is what they did with Shenzhen. Shenzhen, uh, gonna get the numbers wrong, but it was over 250 square kilometers when they launched. Okay. The second is you could pass legislation that allows the zone to then incorporate nearby lands with the zone regime without additional legislative action. And there you can say, okay, all right, if the zone is productive, then what they do, they, they buy nearby land, yeah. and that nearby land is then incorporated into the government structure of the zone, which then allows for some of this, this long-term growth potential to occur. That's very clever because you don't need to go through the really intricate steps of going again through the process of creating a legislation, approving it. That's very clever. Where has this been implemented so far? Uh, I, I mean, it, I think it, it depends on what exactly it is. Um, historically, there have been a lot of, uh, so, so Shenzhen, Dubai to some extent, Hong Kong, Singapore, You've seen this be implemented on, on, on somewhat smaller scales in, in other places. Uh, Honduras, for example, several years ago passed legislation that allows the creation of what are called uh, ZEDES, Zona de Empleo de Cero Económico, which is um, that the legislation is, is quite interesting in that it allows the importation of a, a new legal system though the, the Honduran government has been slow to approve these projects, and to my knowledge, none are currently approved. Um, there's also examples such as uh, the Dubai International Financial Center, which imported common law because they realized that Islamic law is not exactly conducive to modern finance. So they said, okay, well, everybody likes common law, right? Uh, I think it's the four of the top, the, the top four financial centers in the world are under common law, yeah. London, New York, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Um, and and uh, Abu Dhabi Global Market, they basically copied the, the Dubai model recently. Uh, and so you, you've, uh, you've seen, I think, different parts of this sort of broader idea be implemented in various stages um, and in various locations. But in my mind, nobody's really brought all the, the constituent pieces together yet. Um, I think right, seasteading is, is, is getting there. They're, they're, uh, they, they have their very interesting French Polynesia project. Um, and, and one of the other projects perhaps worth mentioning is NEOM. It's a new city project in Saudi Arabia. The projected price tag is a half trillion dollars. They'll have fairly substantial uh, uh, legal autonomy from the rest of Saudi Arabia, but it remains to be seen exactly how this is implemented because it was only announced last fall. Also, I mean, I'm, to be honest, a little bit skeptical over the, the medium to short to medium term stability of the Saudi regime given continued low oil prices. Okay, so you mentioned seasteading and this podcast is Blue Frontier's podcast. We met actually in Tahiti. In yes, correct. One year ago, exactly. Yep. I, it's 25th of May, so it was, yeah, I think yesterday and the day before we were in Tahiti. Yeah. Yeah, so what can you tell us about 
How do why do you why do you say that seasteading has such a good chance of succeeding in this path? So uh, to me, what makes seasteading uh, very interesting is, is is several things. One, right? I think they have the high level understanding of the importance of regulatory arbitrage. Yes. Uh, I think with a lot of these projects, they might understand the real estate proportion, but they might not understand the the importance of creating a good legal system. And I think the seasteaders have a good understanding of that. Uh, I think another thing that's that's uh, I mean publicity right in terms of I think that they when the Sea Study Institute was launched they got very bad publicity it was uh, billionaires want floating islands to avoid paying taxes yeah. and they've since I think rebranded very successfully and are getting positive coverage in in a lot of places it's it's a very inspiring vision and then. I think one of the other interesting aspects that might differentiate sea study from land-based projects is, uh, I forgot what this is called, Patrick Friedman has a word for this, maybe dynamic geography. Yeah, dynamic um, geography. Yeah, where if, if right, one, the, the seasteads can meet up, latch up, form a community, and then if one of them says, oh, hey, you guys are being too noisy, or you guys are jerks, they can detach, go in and form a, a different community yeah. and this drastically lowered exit cost where you can vote with your house instead of with just with with, with your feet Thanks. potentially introduces this this very new dynamic that could in the medium and long term end up uh, uh, playing a, a relatively important role in the formation of government structures in, in a seastead. I agree I agree um how do you create an innovative governance zone? Um, so, so, so for context, our, the, the center isn't interested in, in creating these zones per se. The center is interested in creating the ecosystem within which these zones can be created. I think one of the um, reasons that people interested in these ideas haven't had more success in the past is because they've tended to put all of their eggs in, in one basket. And so, for example, Paul Romer, um, he does his TED talk on charter cities. He has an opportunity in Madagascar, subsequently has an opportunity in Honduras. Both of them don't end particularly well. He leaves and then uh, effectively everything falls apart and the discussion goes away. Oh. And so our, our, our goal is to create the discussion to have these ideas in the air such that people are inspired in their home countries to say, hey, this is a cool idea. Maybe I want to, 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 to start um, working on one of these projects. In terms of the, the practical steps in creating one of these, these zones, um, I mean, in some ways, the, the steps are, are fairly easy to the same extent, right? Like Elon Musk in, like, whatever, 2005, when he writes down Tesla's business plan, business model, it's one, create um, uh, uh, create a high value sports car, use that to subsidize the R&D costs for a, high uh, uh, for a high level sedan, use that to subsidize R&D costs for mid-level sedan. Sure, that's Whoa. easy, quote unquote, but <laughs> right in practice, it's very difficult. And so the high level vision of creating one of these zone-based projects is um, you need the government to pass legislation that would allow for um, a, a sufficient degree of legal autonomy 
to to uh, justify a, a investment, to justify uh, to be able to create jobs and generate growth. Two, you would need to create the the the, the legal infrastructure. So if government grants you that legal autonomy, then you have certain decisions to make. And, and the, these decisions might be done jointly with the government, depending on what the legislative process looks like. But you could see, for example, right, okay, you've got the decision to bring in common law, and then which common law do we bring in? Do we bring in British common law? Do we bring in American common law? Do we bring in uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Singaporean common law? You have other discussions such as, all right, how do we curate this? What is the administrative structure of the zone? Um, who has the decision-making rights? Um, is there democracy? If so, to what extent? How are those votes calculated? Uh, you, you, you have other questions such as how do you protect these zones against future expropriation from the, the host country? And then the, so the, the third key component is the, the physical infrastructure. So you basically have what might be called politics, which is getting and sustaining the legal autonomy from the host country. You have governance, which is setting up the governance structure, which includes two things. One, what the initial rule set is for the zone, and two, what is the, is the process by which those rules can be amended and, and new rules created. And then you have three, um, the, the third major aspect is the physical infrastructure, which is building out the roads, it's building out electricity, water, sewage, um, maybe some initial structures, and the, the degree of complexity and initial investment is going to depend on the location. And yeah. on a high level, there's two types of these projects, at least on land. You can imagine satellite cities, which take advantage of much of the existing infrastructure. So you wouldn't necessarily need to build a power plant or an airport or a port. You could effectively just, just piggyback off, off those and simply offer a, a improved uh, a regulatory experience or you could actually create a new city, a la Paul Romer's version, where you find a greenfield site that's 100 miles away, whatever, from existing uh, population centers. You'd probably want it to be on a, a uh, either on a port or on a trade route. And so you would want to look at to what extent is new technology affecting trade routes, and then perhaps take advantage of that, which is something that Dubai did reasonably well to an extent. Uh, because for a long time, the natural layover when traveling from Europe to Asia was in Iran. It was Tehran. Uh, Iran has a relatively educated population. And so that was sort of the natural stopping point. And then what happened? Iranian revolution. All right, you can't stop in Iran anymore. Whoa. Dubai says, um, hey, guys, like we're here. We're a relatively tolerant Muslim country in the Middle East. You can do some investment. It's a cool place. And flights started using that as, 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 as a stopping point, and that was to, to a certain extent the, the, the spark um, that allowed Dubai to turn into what it is today. Wow, that is so clever, and so many flights today stop in Dubai. Yeah. Even when you go to French Polynesia, there yeah. are flights that stop in Dubai. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's, I think when, when, when thinking about creating, right, new, new economic centers, but one of the most important things to consider is what are the prevailing trade routes and how are those trade routes changing? And then depending on what the anticipated growth path, growth rate of the economic center is, you wanna say, all right, based on current trends, 
we're going to hit a population of, I don't know, let's say 100,000 people in five years. And so we're sort of doing, having a five-year mark and a 10-year mark and looking at what, what, what the trade patterns might be in five to 10 years to take advantage of that, of that, those changing trade patterns and, and the potential growth because of that. Wow, that is extremely interesting. It makes me think of when you were telling me that one of the reasons why you decided to create the center was to, as you said, to build this ecosystem of knowledge because in many cases, these ideas that are very forward thinking have been misrepresented. And you want to bring the research and the academic and the knowledge aspect to it so that we can share what they truly are and their benefits, no? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good summary. So we, we, I mean, right, the center is relatively new. We had our formal launch about uh, two months ago. Uh, but we we have, I, I see the our role as, as, as playing two important aspects. First is to, to get a lot of what might be called sort of the academic, more formal knowledge in place to create, to, to some extent, legitimacy and also to some extent, know-how for these projects. And so, for example, regarding know-how, what does it actually mean to create a legal system from scratch, to import a, a, a legal system from a, a high-income country? And so uh, Tom Bell, who I understand is one of the advisors to, to Blue Frontiers, is great. He's done a lot of work with ULEX, which is effectively curating common law. And I'm not a lawyer, so to be honest, I, I don't have a very strong opinion on uh, uh, what is the best mechanism of doing that. But I think it, it speaks to the fact that a great deal of research needs to be done in what has, how has this looked like in past scenarios to, to, to some extent, right, provide guidelines for these projects when they think, okay, I want to import common law. Well, here's five papers you can read on how these other things have done it or have done something like it. And so then you have an idea on the, the best mechanism to, to take those uh, uh, steps. Second, right, I, I think to a large extent, creating the legitimacy is important because as you mentioned, traditionally these ideas have been to a certain extent um, misrepresented. And what is, uh, I, I've heard from several friends as they pitch these ideas to senior politicians, the politicians get excited, they go to their advisors, the advisors tend to be World Bank, McKinsey, Davos types, um. who then shoot down the ideas and say, let's get a special economic zone with slightly lower taxes, without realizing that these projects are much more than simply tax arbitrage, mm -hmm but really trying to get at the, the fundamental infrastructure of governance to create the system within which sustained economic de development uh, uh, can occur. And then the, the other role we at the center see ourselves playing is to try to bring together a lot of these groups that could potentially be interested in, in these ideas. And so for example, there's a lot of, uh, economists, development economists I speak to, who are sympathetic to charter cities. They could have criticisms here and there, but by and large, they, they think it's an idea worth engaging. However, they haven't engaged it, uh, at least publicly, because you don't get career points for doing so. And so, right, uh, Paul Romer, right, he, when he, he, he's a Nobel laureate caliber economist, but when he, he had the idea of charter cities, he doesn't publish it in an academic journal. What he does is he goes and gives a TED talk. And I think that speaks to the fact that, right, at least the way the current economics profession is structured, it's difficult to advance, to, to gain value from having some of these discussions. 
Um, two, you have, right, uh, I would say, I don't know, just guessing, right, 20% of unicorn founders in Silicon Valley want to, to build a city. I've had this discussion with multiple people, <laughs> and it's, I'm building a war chest, so when I exit, I can go build a city. Um, but they're not necessarily engaging some of the development economists. So, all right, get these groups start talking. Three, you have some fairly high-level uh, politicians, uh, for example, Gordon Brown, Anne-Marie Slaughter, George Soros, not a politician, who have been weakly supportive of the idea of refugee cities. And so it might be a line or two in a op-ed that says something like, okay, we need economic zones for refugees. They haven't thought through the idea, but it's something where I think if you blow up the proposal, put it in front of them, let them take credit for it, you can see fairly substantial action relatively quickly. Um, another group is these new city projects. There are dozens of these new city projects around the world. Um, these are multi-billion dollar real estate projects. Uh, the, the proper term is probably a satellite city where they're creating uh, uh, real estate for 100,000 plus people uh, that, that for, for and, and investing several billion dollars in the infrastructure, but most of these projects are not or are barely thinking about governance. However, right, in terms of, okay, you're investing $3 billion in, in real estate, you can probably spend 10 million to improve the business environment, which yeah. could have fairly substantial impact on the land prices. So there's really this uh, natural constituency for how what these projects mean, how, how they have growth potential. Um, and right now, uh, what, I, what I think a lot of the, the, the past challenge in getting these ideas out there has been, has simply been a lack of communication before the, with, within these different groups. Because to a certain extent, the conversations get siloed. So you have everybody in Silicon Valley talking to everybody in Silicon Valley. You've got the economists talking to the economists. You've got mm -hmm. right, the, the European humanitarians, politicians talking to humanitarians, politicians. You've got the new city projects. They're not really, really even talking to each other. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think by initiating some of these conversations, they're all sort of pawing at the outside of this idea with their own particular perspective. But it, I, I think these projects can be very rapidly accelerated simply by initiating some of these conversations and right, getting, getting the economists to tell the new city people, by the way, you might be able to improve land values by 20% with an improved legal system or right, getting the, the um, European politicians talking to the, 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 the new city people, the European politicians are like, oh wait, some of these projects have a lot of skills that would be relatively easily transferable to refugee camps. Yeah. Um, and then we can bring in some special economic zone consultants or something, right, to maybe create this governance structure. And so what, what, what we wanna do in addition to creating the intellectual as well as the, right, um, sort of practical advice case for these projects is to actually get some of these players in the same room as each other to get the discussions to start happening such that um, we'll, we, we, we can really see, see the ball rolling uh, uh, on these projects in a way that uh, unfortunately over the last 10 years, it hasn't happened to the extent that, that some of us might have hoped. So for those who are listening to us, I'm gonna ask you what do a few concepts mean in just one, two lines. Sure. What is a special economic zone? 
uh, a special economic zone is a area a, a, a usually defined as a territorial area within which certain national level business laws and regulations do not apply. What is a charter city? A charter city is, and this, uh, it was originated by Paul Romer, who is an economist. The definition has somewhat shifted over time. Originally, it was defined as a greenfield city project in a low or middle income country that would be administered by the government of, or the administration of a high income country. Since then, Paul appears to have changed the definition, or not changed the definition, but his views have, I think, evolved. And now he appears to be more open to it being administered by alternative mechanisms. Right. Uh, really? Sweet. Sorry, go on. Uh, sure. Um, it, it, the, the, the term charter city is also, I think, right, it, it's, it, it's grown on a little bit of a life of its own uh, since, since uh, Paul's TED Talk. How is it defined now? I like a lot that alternative model of governance rather than having another government from another nation deciding how to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I, I don't want to say, right, Charter City, I don't think there is one strict definition. I tend to use it simply to mean a, a new city project on a greenfield site with substantial legal autonomy. Um, but uh, depending on the audience, I think one of the challenges in this space is that there are a large number of terms that have a, right, all refer to approximately the same thing and then different people use the terms in different ways. Oh. And there, there, we, we, there, there just hasn't been an agreed upon uh, uh, set of terms and definitions uh, at this point, which has, has made it a, a bit of a challenge in, in communicating some of these ideas. Okay. Well, I guess that's an advantage that seasteading has, that seasteading is a term and a concept on its own. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think seasteading is good because it has it does have a single meaning. It does have this this associated brand, but uh, I mean, right? Special economic zones is a, basically the same thing as a free zone, and those are used relatively interchangeably. A charter city is, depending on who you're talking to, arguably the same as a free city, but those are used um, more or less interchangeably. Right? The development community likes the term charter city more. The sort of techno libertarian community likes the term free cities more. Uh, and, and, and I, I, uh, so far the center has tried to avoid getting in some of these debates and just depending on which discussion we're having with, if, which, with which party, we'll use whatever term they're more familiar with. I understand. And you did your PhD on three case studies, three essays of proprietary cities. What yep. are proprietary cities? So proprietary city, this is when I tried to coin my own term and then decided I, I sort of <laughs> dropped that. Um, the, the idea of proprietary cities, it's inspired by both charter cities and proprietary communities. Um, proprietary community is a concept from Spencer Heath and then Spencer McCollum. Uh, uh, it's a fairly interesting story. Spencer Heath was a Georgist who, Georgist industrialist, made a bunch of money, retired, spent a lot of time writing at a break with the Georgists. Uh, so Georgists are advocates of this uh, single value tax or land value tax, they also call the single tax, where it's you, you tax the unimproved value of land. The, the logic is land has no deadweight loss. So if you tax income, for example, 
if you tax labor, you get less people working. But if you tax land, you're not going to get less land. Oh, okay. And two, most of the value of land comes from, uh, it's effectively an externality, right? Like the value of uh, the, the space I'm working in isn't valuable because of space per se. It's valuable because it's in Washington, D.C. It has all these amenities nearby. And so those are benefits that would exist with or without. And so by, by you, you, you can effectively have this tax with, with minimal distortion. Uh, Spencer Heath, in what might be called the proto-public choice move, basically said, okay, this is cool, but government is still generally incompetent and unable to execute on a lot of these functions. So instead of imagining the government executing the single tax, we can imagine there being a private landowner who effectively, right, because they're the owner of the land, they want to improve the value of the land, so they would provide what are, they would provide public goods. Um, in exchange, they would uh, have a tax, or, or right, I'm doing air quotes now for those listeners, or uh, a, a, a lease, where you can think of, for example, a shopping mall. The, the owner of the shopping mall provides all sorts of public goods, uh, security, lighting, open spaces, yeah. restrooms, et cetera, why? Because by providing these public goods, they're able to increase the the, the value of the storefronts. Yes. Uh, and so combining this idea with the charter city, where the charter city says, okay, what does it look like to get this good institutional structure there? The proprietary city says, okay, this is what, um, what, what would a, a, a city level look like if there is a single owner that is the residual claimant on land prices what would be their incentives to govern well? What are some examples we can look at that might give hints as to right, uh, how, how they might act in, in, in certain circumstances? Because they do have this incentive to improve land value, which ideally creates this virtuous circle, um, because right, by improving land value, then because they're the residual claimant on the land, they get to soak up those excess profits. Um, but then there's the potential downside, right, which is that they, 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 being the single owner, they, uh, it's, it's relatively costly to exit. And so you could imagine there being a little bit of an exploitative relationship there. And so in my dissertation, what I did was try to, one, the, develop this concept broadly, link it to several other ideas in, in economics and development economics, and then two, look at semi-analogous case studies where there were natural monopolies, natural territorial monopolies, and see how those monopolies acted and whether it was in a predatory manner or whether it was in a, a more, more beneficial manner. And the evidence was generally, I wouldn't say strongly supportive, but weakly supportive of the idea that ter natural territorial monopolies generally do uh, appear to be, to be welfare improving in, in a, in, in low and middle income countries. How interesting. Which was these two cases that you exactly looked at? So it, I, I think looking, saying looking at two cases is a little bit more specific. What, what I did was I, one of the, the, the examples I, I looked at was uh, uh, private water provision in it, mostly in middle income countries. There's been a fairly amount of, or there was uh, a lot of water supply systems were privatized in the mostly in the 80s some in the 90s in in uh in a lot a lot in latin america yeah, yeah. and there were a, a lot of uh uh studies on that and and by and large the general evidence was regarding those those systems that there were 
improvements. Improvements weren't huge, but they were, were meaningful. And they're, they're, it's, it's relatively challenging because a lot of this has to do with to what extent is the oversight of these projects uh, successful. And they don't, they're not exactly analogous to a proprietary city because in a proprietary city, if you're talking about a lower middle income country, there is much higher growth potential um, because you can see land, for example, in Chicago, the first hundred years of the existence of Chicago, the land value in Chicago increased 30,000 fold, right? 30,000 X. And so because of that, if you're still at the right, like low end of the income wow. spectrum, low end of uh, uh, productivity spectrum on land, there's such tremendous gains. It's not exactly analogous to, to, to water supply, but either, there are some lessons you can draw. Also, for example, looking at how uh, right, public airlines are, are run versus private airlines, um, and and uh, trying yes. to trying to understand okay what right no, there are no proprietary cities in existence, but we can look at examples that have some of the same characteristics and try to draw lessons from some of that. Another another interesting example is Disney World. Disney World does have a, a fairly substantial degree of legal autonomy from the state of Florida. They, have, for example, have their own water drainage district there. Uh, and my memory might not be 100% on this, but they have, uh, I believe it's, it's uh, they are basically exempt from zoning codes, from electric codes, from fire codes. Um, and yet, right, I generally, I think I'd feel much safer. I haven't been, but I <laughs> would presume I'd feel much safer at Disney World than in a lot of uh, apartment complexes in Florida. Why? Because if Disney World messes up, if somebody is hurt or, or dies, right, they lose a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so at least in that example, in that scenario, it, it to, to a certain extent, makes sense for them to be exempt from some of these legal licensing requirements because there's such a clear relationship between their bottom line and their ability to provide these goods and services. And that I think is is an indication that this is this this idea of a proprietary community is at least um, should be taken seriously and, and, and should be considered in in thinking of how to how to construct new communities that can have better governance systems than than the currently um, available alternatives. Yes. So when we were talking, I think it was in December about this subject. You also mentioned as one of the advantages of private governments, the possibility to have better dispute resolution mechanisms. Can you deepen a bit on that? Sure. Um, and so, so first, I think, right, uh, for the center, we don't necessarily advocate for private governance per se. Uh, my, my personal opinion is that private governance is one of the the potential governance models in this basket okay. and we should have experiments see which ones work best try to improve them iterate etc um my, my i i think that private governance would likely win out just because if there is a giant pot of money then it seems likely somebody's going to take advantage of that and i think the potential right uh, returns from private governance just just that, that incentive structure makes it more likely to, 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 to see the, the sort of investment, to see the energy, to see the attention um, to make the projects uh, successful. But uh, it, it, if 
if there's a project or two that end up being very poor with the private governance model, then I'll update my priors and uh, adjust my, my relative belief in what the optimal governance model looks like. Um, at least, and also just as a caveat, governance model, optimal governance model is probably the wrong term. Generally, I think we should think in terms of constraints and context instead of thinking of what is the platonic idea for governance we should think of what are the relative constraints that face these different societies at different points in time and try to construct governance systems that best reflect that. Uh, so for example, the, the, the best governance model for France today is very different from the best governance model for France in 1938. Um, but uh, to your question in terms of what does it look like, uh, what, what are some potential models for dispute resolution? Um, I, I think this is this is this is a relatively interesting question because um, there's there's I, traditionally right there's been basically uh, common law versus civil law, and they they have for example French France uh, does not have juries, the the common law countries wow. tend to have juries. Uh, the academic literature on this is fairly supportive of, of common law as being better for economic development, but in terms of just right, a purely resource calculation, uh, having 12 people sit on a jury for a period of time is a uh, fairly high cost. And so simply having a judge deciding might be a lower cost. One of the arguments for why common law might have proven superior in the past is because it effect, uh, was a more effective mechanism uh, uh, to check state power. But if you have a state that is generally aligned, a government that is generally aligned with the interests of the people, then you wouldn't necessarily need that check on state power. It might make more sense to uh, import a, a civil law model without a, a, a jury. But I think more broadly, it's, it's going to be possible to innovate and to improve on some of these dispute resolution models, you have this happening to a certain extent in uh, private dispute resolution. Uh, so for example, I mean, Amazon will generally just refund you with, with almost anything you do, mm -hmm. but you can imagine uh, uh, programming a relatively basic uh, computer program uh, that would be able to resolve disputes of under $100 or under $200, wherever the, the, the project mm -hmm. That, that you're in and that, that could end up being a fairly cost-effective mechanism for getting away, uh, for getting out of um, uh, some of these, these uh, low-value low civil courts. But I think in general, just if we look at government and how government is able to innovate, um, most uh, cities and states in the US, for example, you still can't text 911, right? Texting is a technology that's like 20 years old. Um, and there are uh, easily a wide number of examples where you can think where I would want to text the police instead of calling them, yeah. right? If there's an intruder, if there's an intruder in your yeah. house and you're hiding in the closet, you don't want to call. That's going to make a lot of noise. Maybe you want to text them. So it's like, hey, come save me. Yeah. Uh, there was this very interesting case in uh, New Orleans where a local entrepreneur effectively created an app. It was like Uber for cops where he would then, he got some grants and he hired off-duty police officers, gave them souped up golf carts, and people could use this, this, this app and they would be able to see where the cops were at any time. They would be able to, to call the cops if there were people making trouble. 
it it, it dropped um, the the wait times. I think it was from about thirty minutes to less than five. Yeah. Like and right, this is this technology is not is not complicated. This technology is not difficult. The reason it hasn't been implemented is political. Yeah. Um, and so by creating these 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 uh, new forms of governance that aren't necessarily beholden to a lot of these political interests that might make innovation in government otherwise challenging, I think uh, the, the result will be to see a lot of innovation in how some of these traditional governance services are provided. Yes. And so, right, I mean, a lot of people have smartphones these days, so maybe it makes more sense to right, have an app where it's easy to, to, to call the police. Um, maybe it, it, it makes sense to, uh, right, uh, it's, it's one person can't necessarily think of all of the potential avenues, but the, the, the important part is, right, getting, creating the environment within which these entrepreneurs, within which these people have, have an incentive to figure out how to provide services better, to figure out how, how to make the world a, a better place. And right now in the U.S., I think there are certain avenues of innovation that are, are, are blocked off either by, by regulation or because the government is the sole provider of those and is just not interested in that innovation. And so to create spaces where that innovation can take place, I think offers the, the potential for some, some substantial long-term benefits. Yes. And actually the whole governance 2.0 trends, which is which tries to uh, collect better data by means of improving citizens' participation mechanisms with things like apps where citizens can report uh, where to where there is a need of deleting a graffiti or where there's a trash can that is a mess and needs to be cleaned. They really help. Um, however, they are marginal when it comes to truly transformative governance decisions. They they fit the system, but it, they don't transform it. In a, they don't improve it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk about smart cities, and I mean, smart cities to me are interesting, but they at best have level effects, right? It's, it's basically saying, okay, how can we make traffic flow better? How can we allocate police resources better? Right, all right, great. We should do these things better. Yeah. But, right, looking at the medium term, looking at the long term, what really has transformative effects on society is, is growth. It's changing the growth rate. And so rather than thinking of, all right, what can we do to make trash collection better on the margin, it's, right, like that's, that, that, that doesn't change the long-term growth trend. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of thinking, how can we create a governance structure that creates this, this incentive for innovation that can truly change the, the, the long-term growth trend. And, and that's part of the reason why, why I'm so excited about these projects. So I know that uh, the governance can also facilitate innovating, and I know this because you told me, in terms of biotech, drones, many aspects where we, we could really be innovating, but again, politics gets in the middle and it doesn't let advance or accelerate these technologies. What do you think? Where do you stand in terms of drone regulations, biotechnologies? Sure. I, so I, I like to, to frame, I think there's, when thinking about zone-based reforms, I think there's two important aspects of that. There's one is catch-up growth, 
And so if we're talking about Latin America, if we're talking about Africa, there what we're talking about is, okay, those countries are by and large behind the frontier. What types of governance changes can be made that will allow them to catch up to the frontier? Mm. But then when you're talking about high-income countries, right, the U.S., most of Europe, the question is no longer how do you get to the frontier, they're at the frontier. The question is, all right, how do you push past the frontier? And, and, and I think to that extent, right, looking at the areas of innovation that are being most held back by, by, regu by bad regulations today, some of those are the ones you just mentioned, such as drones, biotech, uh, so right, Larry Page, for example, his, his uh, flying car company, they're in New Zealand, not the U.S. Why? Because the FAA wasn't able to create a regulatory structure which was attractive to this flying car company. So this innovation is happening in New Zealand. I think it would be better if it happened in the U.S., right? There's more human capital in the U.S. The rate of acceleration might be increased. And also, I'm a bit patriotic, right? Like, if we're doing cool stuff, let's do the cool stuff in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> yes. And, and so I think, right, Dubai has done this model to an extent where they're basically playing this cutting-edge regulatory arbitrage game. But the, I think there, there's a great opportunity for potentially doing this in the U.S. Um, uh, Mark Andreessen, who's a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, he had this very interesting essay, it's like seven years old now, uh, Turn Detroit into Drone Valley, where he makes this argument that Rust Belt cities could be revitalized by creating regulatory frameworks within which cutting edge research in these different areas could take place. Yeah. You can also imagine in, in Mexico or perhaps Central America, a city being created that, that allowed uh, some of this innovation that is currently just being slow or banned in the US from taking place. Uh, so, I mean, crypto is another example. There's uh, crypto is hot, crypto is big, uh, but, Right. What does the optimal crypto regulatory framework look like? And because it's so mobile, it provides a, a uh, opportunity for some of these smaller countries to really take advantage of these large capital flows. Exactly. So what role does seasteading plays there? What drove seasteading where? Yes. So seasteading is a very cutting edge technology in many ways. Yeah. Uh, well, technologically, economically, politically, financially, in terms of the funding, societal, community, environmentally. So many different aspects. Yeah. How do you see that seasteading can push societies or can transform how societies innovate? So I think the for for me the the short term play for seasteading is to some extent, what we were just discussing on this regulatory arbitrage, right, at least in French Polynesia, it's part of the EU, so you have access to the entire uh, human capital market for the EU. Is it possible to create a regulatory framework within which some research that can't legally take place in the EU could take place on, on the seastead? So maybe some, right, like biotech innovation or, 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 or something like that. And so in, in, in the short to medium term, I think one of the, the potential plays for seasteading is to create this uh, regulatory framework that would be able to accelerate the development of some of these technologies that are currently being held back by an outdated regulatory system. Um, long term, when we're talking about, all right, hopefully it gets to this point of, of floating cities on the ocean, and I think it, it's there, there's there's a whole host of other things that, that can happen. I mean, 
not just the, the sort of cutting edge innovation, they might be able to provide, uh, 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 I mean, refuge for, for, for climate refugees. They, they, but, but more broadly, I think they can introduce this aspect of, of uh, competition into the provision of governance such that because CSTEDs ideally are mobile, then this starts putting pressure on governments to provide their services better, to, to be less predatory, to, to, to really step their game up in a way that they unfortunately haven't been doing so over the past um, few few generations. And so by introducing this sort of, right, this new frontier, this new exit, this new outlet, then it puts pressure on existing governments to get their act together in a little bit of a better way. And so it ideally then can provide a mechanism to improve the, 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 the worldwide functioning of, of, of governments everywhere. You are familiarized with many, I know, many projects, many cases, many regulations around the world of everything we've talked about, special economic zone, charter cities, even let's use your own term, proprietary cities. What would be your ideal location anywhere in the world for a system? I know you're a very big fan of Dubai. <laughs> uh, Dubai, <laughs> Dubai is interesting because they've largely, in my opinion, solved the political problem. So everything is effectively a, a technocratic challenge. Oh. Um, I, I think it really depends on, to me, the primary constraint for these projects is getting the, the, the politics right, is getting a country that's willing to pass legislation that allows you to create the C-zone. And so, I mean, the, the, the sort of, I think, high-level constraints I would look at when locating a, a C-zone, but this would also apply to any one of these projects, is basically twofold. It's one, where, where in, in, in the trade routes, what, what, are, what, are, what are the current trade routes and how does it fit in with those trade routes? And so, all right, because I think that provides a, a to some extent, right, like, natural value add if it's if it's on those trade routes actually so i get i think i said two things so three things two population possibilities it's a little bit different for seasteading than it would be for um, land-based projects but i think that in general you want these projects to scale up as rapidly as possible so you would want a large potential population that would be able to move to the projects yes and then the the third and most important would be the the the, the politics the is there a host country that's willing to play ball, that's willing to grant a wide degree of autonomy, that's willing to support the project, where the risk of future political expropriation is, is relatively minimal? Um, can you find a country that fits in those uh, criteria? And if they're willing to pass that legislation, then that is the, I think, most, most natural fit for where to locate either a, a seastead or one of these, these other zone-based projects. I love it. Would you move to assisted? Um, depends where. <laughs> <laughs> Would you move to assisted? There's one of our team members, Nick, and mm -hmm. one of the co-founders. He wouldn't mind assisted in Antarctica. Uh, I don't want to move to Antarctica. <laughs> um, I I like living in DC. Um, I mean, right, my, my constraints for living, I want there to be a, basically a large population of people who have relatively high human capital who are interested in, relatively interested in things that I'm interested in. Okay, that's why you gravitate a lot to Silicon Valley. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so if a seastead is able to create those conditions, and also I don't want it to be too far from everything. Uh, I travel a lot, and so if I increase, right, every flight has an extra three hours to get somewhere, that's a relatively big negative for me. Um, and, and, and so when, when I'm thinking about where to live, whether it's a, a seastead or, or somewhere else, those are the, 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 the constraints that, that I think about. Okay, awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very, very, very much for your time. Great, thank, thanks for having me, it's been fun. No, thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Blue Frontiers podcast. To learn more about our work and find out how you can support the project, visit blue-frontiers.com or visit our social channels. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Blue Frontiers, or shoot us a note via our website. If you learned something and enjoyed the show, tell a friend or leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and remember to join us for the next episode.